So it's lovely to have you all here. And um, let's give a warm welcome to Paul Brown as he comes to preach. Thank you very much. It's nice to see some, a few familiar faces of people I know here, a lot of people I don't know. Um, we've, we, me and Steph had some fantastic adventures when we was working together. I, I, just a couple of things. As I walked in, actually, they come to mind. We, um, we've had some adventures in fasting, haven't we? <laughs> we, used to, we used to do some regular fasting, which got a bit... Well, not silly, but we, we started off by doing a one or two days a week, and then we was extending it to sort of three or four days or some stages, weren't we? But really, but God taught certainly taught me things. I don't even taught Steph anything through it, apart from feeling hungry. Taught us stuff through that in fasting, and we we went on a few adventures of giving as well. Didn't do you remember? We used to just challenge and encourage one another to be generous and to give away what God has given us financially. And it was just great fun as you just prove God. You know, you're giving, you're giving to others and giving and seeing supernatural provision coming back to you and seeing money moving around. Great fun, wasn't it? That's just lots of exciting things that, that he taught me. He's been like a father to me, really. And, you know. <laughs> Which, uh, my holiday story? What? Oh, okay, I'll tell you that story. We'll get to a sermon in a minute. Um, there was a time when... Um, it was a good few years ago. The kids, the kids were young. I think we still only had the four. I don't ever Oscar. Oscar. No, Oscar was a baby at this stage. Sorry, Oscar. Ah, oh, he was a lovely baby. <laughs> he's, he's 14 now. Um, we, we went off on holiday to Hastings, that exotic um, destination. And just before, the day before we were due to go, in fact, a couple of days before, we were at the Stonely Bible Week. Some of you may remember that. And God spoke to Denise, my wife, and God's told her to give away all our holiday money, right? It was during one of those sermons about giving at Stonely just before the big offering. So she turned to me and said, has God spoken to you at all? And I said, no. <laughs> <laughs> and, and it turned out that God had told her to. So I trust my wife. She hears from God. So when we came home from the Bible week, the money was in, you know, um, we, we put the money in an envelope, prayed, God told us who to give it to. This is all of my holiday money, right? I'm just about to do my annual summer holiday with the kids. All our holiday money in an envelope and told us who to give it to. So we sort of anonymously poked it through a letterbox and handed it to this person. So now this is the situation. The next day we're going on holiday. I've got no money in the bank. I've got half a tank of petrol enough to get us there, right? And no spending money. So you think, well, God gave us the holiday, that was clear. God told us to give the money away, that was clear. So we go, and we're driving off, and the kids are all singing, we're all going on a summer holiday, and I'm thinking, we might not be. <laughs> and we were staying in the home of a, um, a, pastor, a pastor of the church down in, a New Frontiers church down in Hastings. He'd gone off to somewhere far more exotic than Hastings, and he'd let us have his home, which was fantastic for us. So we moved in. This was the second year we'd done it. And the previous year, they'd left some food out for us and some, you know, they, a note to say, help yourself to whatever's in the cupboards and blah, blah, blah. So we got there. Well, the cupboards were bare. And a note was there saying, because from previous experience, they said, I know you're going to do a Sainsbury shop. So we've cleared out the cupboards for you. So we've got there. I've got no money. I honestly got no money. No, and there's no food in the cupboards to eat either. Right, so it's now getting a little bit desperate. We found half a loaf of bread for the kids to have tea and a few Mars bars, right? So that, they had bread and Mars bars for tea. The next day, we went off to 
to the New Frontiers Church at Hastings. And I thought, well, there'd be men and women of God there who were here prophetically to give to that couple who were there visiting. So we were there excited by what God could do, and no one gave us nothing. So I said to the kids, fill up on biscuits, right? <laughs> Serious. I mean, they're all saying, can we go out? Can we get McDonald's? Can we go in? So now it's getting serious. So we've gone back to the house, and we're praying. And we're seriously praying and asking God, Lord, we need some provision, you know? And we actually told the oldest two um, what was going on. And so they were praying um, with us. And, you know, the, the clock was ticking through the Sunday afternoon and there was nothing. We had no money. We had no, we were on this, in this place. Nothing. And we're praying and praying and praying. And it got to about four o'clock in the afternoon. I think I phoned Steph, didn't I? Well, I can't, what did I say to you? Yeah, so I said to you. <laughs> I've got egg on my face is what I said to him. It was so traumatic I blanked out of my mind because I thought I've pr- I'm trying to prove God here and I haven't proved him. And then, then I think as Denise walks out from the living room um, into the hallway of the house we're standing, and on the mat in the hallway was a white envelope with our names on it. And we opened that up, and there was, I think it was, I don't want to get this wrong, £200 in cash in that envelope? Was it more? So there was a, so I will say £200. As an evangelist, you keep the numbers, try and keep the numbers low and not high. There was £200 in cash in that envelope, you think. Thank you, Jesus. I mean, to see my kids celebrate and rejoice over that was fantastic, right? But it didn't stop there, right? Because later on that day, somebody from the church we was at in the morning came round and apologized for not doing what God told them to do and gave us some cash, right? And then Steph, the next day, I think it was, Steph came down to Hastings by but just for the day or the day trip, if I remember rightly, I can't remember. You've got a better memory than me. And you gave us an envelope that somebody in Bermondsey had given him, knowing that he was coming to Hastings, said, oh, can you give that to Paul and Denise? And there was more cash in that envelope. We ended up with nearly double the money that we gave away. You think all glory goes to God. Now, please don't, please don't think, well, there's a strategy for getting holiday money. Right, that was just a way God done something in us that particular time. He taught us a huge step, you know, huge things in terms of faith and trusting God. Taught my kids something in terms of trusting God for provision and all the rest of it. And it's a fantastic lesson to learn. I could tell you other stories about holiday monies and other situations, but I won't um, unless you push me at the end of the service. Um, Tonight, I'm here again tonight. Now, I know typically you would have a repeat sermon in the evening. I've chatted to Steph about this, and um, I would like to preach a a, a different message this evening um, about the authority we have in Christ. You know, Jesus said, all authority in heaven and on earth is given to me, therefore go. We go with a delegated authority and a weight of authority, which I don't think, I certainly understand the the fullness of that. I'd like to preach into that a little bit, and I'd love to pray for some of you guys. I think there's lessons to learn in terms of authority over sickness, where we can speak to sickness confidently expecting sickness and disease and malady and illness to go in the name of Jesus. So I'd love to, I'd love to you know, if, unless you're Dutch or Spanish, come tonight 
And, and I'd, I'd like to preach into that, but then we'll have a t- ministry time and we'll pray for one another and pray for those who are sick and see what Jesus does. Is that, so if you're open to that, please come. There's an open invitation to come to two services on a Sunday. Yes? Amen. Amen. Okay. What, Steph, what time have I got to stop? Okay. Very funny. Very funny. Oh, that's, that's cool. Quarter past is good. Okay, I don't, you've been running for a, a series in 1 Corinthians, I believe. Um, if you have a Bible and you'd like to follow this, um, could you turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 9? What I'm going to do this morning is, um, is a little bit of a sandwich coming, okay? So the, the first slice of bread, if you like, is going to be some comments about this passage I'm going to read. And then the filling, which, is, which comes as by way of a big fat lump of illustration, <laughs> um, will, will be sort of sat there in the middle. And then the next slice of bread will be a few, few closing comments about this passage. That's where, that's where we're going to go. I won't tell you too much detail now because it's going to unfold um, very quickly as we go through. So, so we'll have a slice of comments about the passage, a big slice of illustration, if you like, and then some more comments about the passage. Um, um, 1 Corinthians 9, and I'm going to read from verses 19 to 23 in just a moment. Just, just a couple of comments about um, Corinth and, and the letter written to them. Corinth was, a, 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 it seems, an interesting city. You know, most large cities, in fact, I would say every large city, even today, has areas where you know, you've got your, the, the drug dealers and your prostitutes and the strippers and the, the, just the dodgy under the dodgy characters of life. Most cities, every city, I would say, has that. In some cities, you get tier, tourists even walk around just to gulp and observe, don't they? Well, in the ancient world, it was no different. You know, the whole of Corinth had a reputation for a certain dodgy lifestyle. Um, the Romans made the Corinthians the butt of dirty jokes, I found out. Um, and, you know, they were portrayed as drunken brawlers, the Corinthians. In fact, the Greeks even had a verb to, to Corinthianize. Did you know that? The Greeks had a, actually, they coined a phrase to Corinthianize, meaning to, to live shamelessly or immorally. Right, so that's, that's the, the sort of context of the, where the church has started, this new church, and the thrust of the letter written to that church in this place, to, to what are essentially new Christians in a new church, is really centered around all the issues of um, discipline and order and, you know, just teaching this young church in this dodgy town how to live a Christian life in community. Um, so, you know, and looking to build up the body of Christ in that, in that city, which must, it must have been tough to be a Christian in a place like that, coming from a culture like that, mustn't it? You know, and people as a rule don't like being corrected. I certainly don't anyway. <laughs> it's been done to me enough times, but I don't like it. Um, uh, but I'm, I'm sure you guys are open to it, but I certainly aren't. So, so this letter, that's the context of, of this letter. So let, let me just read these verses through from, from the NIV. It says this, Paul, Paul writes to the Corinthians, chapter 9, verse 19. Though... I am free and belong to no man. I make myself a slave to everyone 
to win as many as possible. To the Jews, I become like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I become like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so as to win, tho- to, so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I become like one not having the law, though I am not free from God's law, but I'm under Christ's law. So as to win those not having the law. To the weak, I become weak. To win the weak. I have become all things to all men so that by all possible means I might save some. I do this for the sake of the gospel that I may share in its blessings. Holy Spirit, I pray for myself and I pray for your people gathered here. I ask that you would speak to us, that each of us would leave this place with something from you. Each of us will be affected and changed by your word and the application of it. Lord, would you do new things in us day by day, and I pray that today will be no exception. We love your word, Lord. We love your spirit. So impact our lives, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I'm going to start with a question in this, the first slice of bread, if you like. Is Paul's way of life demonstrated through these words something we should all imitate? Or is it just something for the, for, for the apostles and, and for the, the sort of traditional missionaries, those who leave one place and go off and do their thing? You know, to go to another culture, go to another people group. Is it just something that for the, for the specialists and for the, just for the elite to, to imitate? Or is it for all? Um, there, uh, just, just on that, it's just a, a quick story, really. I, I've, been, I've had the, um, the good, good fortune to go to Nigeria a couple of times, go to Lagos and minister at a conference out there. And um, it, it helped me so much understand something of a different culture right so i've you know grown up in a very in a very narrow experience of 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 culture in the uk and to observe firsthand a a, a very very different setting in an uh, you know urban africa was so helpful and I'll, i'll give you an illustration how it was helpful after i'd come back from my second trip to to nigeria i was chatting to somebody who works in a doctor's surgery and they, they observed um, a Nigerian mum in that surgery who, when the doctor called her name, she, she went into the doctor's room, leaving her toddler in the waiting room. And the comment made to me by um, this white English lady was how terrible uh, that mother was in just... You know, just leaving her toddler to run around in the waiting room. It could, it could have run out in the street. It could have, you know, it was a shocking behavior, shocking parenting. Now, I, I heard that having just returned from Nigeria, having seen a very different way of communities functioning together. So in, in the church and in, uh, where, where I was over there, I observed the, uh, no, we've got adults and kids milling around, but I observed a community parenting which I don't see in, in certainly in white English settings. So if a parent went out of the room or went out of the, went out of the compound where we was and their kids were there, they did that knowing their kids were safe. Why were they safe? Well, there's other adults there. There's a, there's a, different, uh, a different understanding of parenting. 
Can you see what I'm saying here? So, so they knew if they left their child, the child was safe because there was other adults. Whereas, so, so you think, well, this person, I'm not, saying, I'm, I'm not making any comment about it too much other than with a Nigerian mindset, she's gone into the doctor and left her child because there's a waiting room full of adults. Now, maybe, maybe she should have learned something about English culture as well, but even so, it just helps you understand helps you understand that there are different cultures and different ways functioning together. And they're woven together. And we make value judgments and you think, how how can they do that? That's shocking. Have you seen what they do? So if I invite certain people into my home, a a sign that they are really accepted. So if Steph and Davina had come around my house to to receive serious ministry about their relationship... um, I hope they would have felt at home and comfortable and free enough to have just wandered into my kitchen to make themselves a cup of tea, right? And that's quite a, an honour that somebody could do that in, in certainly in my culture, my setting. Well, for some people, to say, well, go and make yourself a cup of tea would, it would be verging on an insult because of, because of um, the culture of hospitality in certain settings. I'm your guest and you're telling me to make a cup of tea? But can you see how it, how it can um, get very difficult at times? You see? So, I don't know how I got right into all that stuff, but, but in terms of culture and, and, and um, Paul's sort of instructions and encouragement to us, that's, that's really where we're going to be going. So, is it just for the missionaries? Is it just for the apostles? Or is it for all? If we go to the next, if you go to the next chapter of 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 10, right at the end of 1 Corinthians 10, verse 31, we, we read a very similar passage. It says, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Do not cause anyone to stumble, whether Jews, Greeks, or the church of God. See, the issue here is exactly the same as in the passage we're looking at, right? It's how to relate to Jews and Greeks so as to win them for Christ. Different cultures, different backgrounds, different ways of doing things. Right, you see? So in other words, adapt as much as you can, but don't sin, which is probably an obvious statement, but I'll throw it in anyway. Adapt as much as you can, but don't sin. So it goes on, verse 33 of chapter 10. Even as I try to please everybody in every way, for I'm not seeking my own good, but the good of many, so that they may be saved. That's the same as chapter 9, verse 22. I have become all things to all men, that I, by, I may by all means save some. So it's not just the specialists and the missionaries. And here's the answer in chapter 11, verse 1. He says, Paul says, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. It's for all of us to live that way. To, to, to look to, to win people from all backgrounds, whether they're Jews or Greeks or, or whatever. Paul was imitating Jesus, and he wants us to imitate him. So what's Paul's, Paul's aim in all this? Well, he's made himself a slave to all. Why has he made himself a slave to all? That's a, that's a massive statement. Why has he become as a Jew to the Jews? Why has he made himself as one not under the law? Why has he made himself to be weak to the weak? What's his aims in all this? Well, it's to win others. I mean, it's obvious, but it's worth stating. It's to win others. 
Five times he says it in that little passage we read in chapter 9, to win as many as possible, to win the Jews, to win those under the law, to win those not having the law, to win the weak. That's why he's doing it. That's why he's willing to make himself a slave to people that he might win them. Five times he says it, and at the end, in verse 22, he underlines it all when we read, I've become all things to all men, so that by all possible means I might save some. Can you see the passion in those words and the heart he has? He looks across a multicultural situation. He'll see people from every tribe and tongue and background and culture and different ways of living. And he'll think, I want to reach them for Jesus. I want to win them. I want to save them. It's such a challenge because it's so difficult to speak to people from another culture and another background and to reach them. It certainly is for me. To make mistakes, you think, I don't like making mistakes, so I won't do it. There's a, there's a character defect in me, and I have to battle that all the time. If I'm not very good at doing something, I won't do it. But the thing is, you're never going to get good unless you do it, are you? Can you see? So there's a danger for me that I won't speak to them, therefore, because they're not the same as me. Can you see that? So it's, 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 there's a challenge, and the word, when I, I need to hear the word of God like this to challenge me to do stuff. So how do you use your freedom in Christ? How do you use your freedom in Christ so that by any means, by all means, you might save some? Now, this is, the, this is where I get to the, the meat bit of this sandwich, right? <laughs> um, because I'm going to make a very particular application now. Um, let, me, let me precede that by saying this. We've, over the years, uh, even recent years in New Frontiers, we've been challenged, and certainly in my church, and I'm sure here, to, to think and reach out multiculturally. You know, and I, like I said to you, I've had the privilege to go to Nigeria and observe things there. I've also, ha- also had the, the privilege to go to Uzbekistan and observe cultures there um, as, as part of the church. I've been to, ministered in Romania as well. So you see different cultures and different things. It's very exciting, very challenging. Um, but what I'm going to talk about today is a huge section of this country's population that essentially the, the church, the, the evangelical church, has not been very good at reaching in recent years. And that is the working class. Okay, that is the working class, uh, and and that's not a, it's not um, an unusual thing. There's been preachers talking about this for a long time in recent you know re- long time in recent years. Let, let me quote a couple of a couple of Christians to you. There's an Anglican minister called Roger Lloyd who spoke out right back in the 1950s, before I was born, right, and he said he said this. Roger Lloyd, an Anglican minister, said this. It is, in fact, a broad truth which multitudinous exceptions that might be cited do not disturb that the artisan class or working class constitutes by far the toughest identifiable core of resistance to the gospel today. Up to the present, no dents at all have been made in its surface. It's a hard saying, but a true one, that until some more effective way of appealing to the artisan has been found there will be no real revival of religion in this country. Since in modern post-war conditions, this class has become socially more important than any other. No amount of success elsewhere will compensate the church for failure here. 
we haven't seen lasting inroads into working class communities. The church, well, the church is so often perceived as to be a prerogative of the, of the middle class. That was certainly the case when I got saved. Me, when me and Denise became Christians back in the, just after rationing finished, um, <laughs> It's shocking when you think back, you, think, you still think you're 25, don't you? But in, we become Christians in the mid-80s, right? In fact, it was 1984. Um, <laughs> I'll be signing for my pension soon. Um, we were pretty much the only working class people in the church. And there were some fantastic... We, had, we were discipled and brought up as Christians by some fantastic people. We've got some friends, friends that we still see regularly now that were around before I got saved and had massive input into shaped my Christian life. Um, but the, they, and they were from the middle-class backgrounds and the church was, was middle-class. So we were like a novelty in a nice way. We were like a novelty act. People would talk to us and quiz us. And how did, what, how did you find the church? And what do you think of us? And why did you come here? And, you know, Jesus, well, obviously. But, 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 but so the, the church was seen as a prerogative of, of the middle, middle class. And despite the multitudinous exceptions that this guy saw, because we was one of those exceptions. But culturally... The church was middle class. Martin Lloyd-Jones, some of you have read and heard of Martin Lloyd-Jones. He highlighted the same theme decades later in the late 70s. He said this, The impression has gained currency that to be a Christian, and more especially an evangelical, means that we are traditionalists. I believe that this largely accounts for our failure in this country to make contact with the so-called working classes. Christianity in this country has become a middle-class movement. Far too often, as non-conformist men have got on in the world and made money and become managers and owners, they have become opponents of the working classes who are agitating for their rights. Today, I believe the gulf is as huge as ever between the evangelical church and the working classes in this country. And, and I think that's why, I mean, just last year, St. Helen's Bishopsgate held um, a conference, which was a great conference, I went along to it, called Reaching the Unreached. And that wasn't referring to some remote, obscure people group um, on the other side of the world, but it was talking about the urban working classes in Britain today. So for decades, we've seen church leaders with a voice trying to sort of learn their way and feel their way through and challenge this, you know, th th this sort of middle-class thing that the church has. And I know it's changing, and I observe it changing. And I'm sure in this room today, there are, there are people from working-class backgrounds as much as there are people from different nation national backgrounds. But we want to see the nation won. We want to see a nation turned around. And, uh, and you know, all, all that stuff I'm just saying has, has been supported by, um, I found some research by a group called Local, Ev Even Local Evangelism and Mission Aid who quoted Carl Beach, Christian Vision for Men, um, and stating the, the church in the UK are 36% male, 64% female, and 98% middle class. You think, Wow! I wouldn't have put the stats at that level, but that's, that's some research that those guys have done. It's, 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 it's challenging, isn't it? I read a book by a lady called Gillian Evans who, who said, it's easy and fashionable in TV programs like Little Britain to satirise and caricature the white working classes in Britain, but people don't really like to talk seriously about class. 
particularly the working class. Right? And, I, and I, sadly, I've found that attitude in some churches, not, not as a church culture, but within individuals, um, I would say, people are casually ridiculed and written off as chavs. Maybe you've heard that term, maybe you've used that term, I don't know. But, but, but Christians, I've heard Christians use that quite comfortably. Um, it, it's beginning to wind me up when I hear people use it. <laughs> it's not often I'll get wound up, Steph. Um, is it? No. <laughs> Um, but, it, but people use that term in a way no other, they, they wouldn't use other phrases and terms that, that, to refer to subcultures or people groups. Um, but that's an acceptable insult, really. Um, do you remember, you remember Jade Goody? Some of you remember Jade Goody. I went to her, I didn't go to her funeral, but I lined the route when they drove down the blue where we live. Um, but there was a real judgmental attitude to her. Um, There's one one piece that I read um, which I think you'd, as I read this you'll agree this is extreme but she, this is what was said I think that Jade and her mother and her entire family of whom we have been the unfortunate viewers of are a bunch of uneducated criminally ignorant lavatory scum I hope that the Goody clan end up back in the depths of their own filth and obscurity where they belong. She got her completely undeserved infamy by pimping herself on telly, and now she thinks she's a top-class celebrity. Well, she's just a bleeping chav of the lowest order. Now, that's extreme, obviously, but not totally unrepresentative. You know, when, when the national newspapers reported on the... Do you remember the Stephen Lawrence um, murder? A, a very... A very um, noted terrible crime down in South London where a group of, allegedly, a group of white guys murdered a young black boy. Now, this, so this isn't a comment about the crime, just to make this clear. This is a comment about the reporting of that crime. Right, so particularly the crime and particularly the, the hearing that was held a few years after at the Elephant and Castle. Listen, so so when, when you look at the newspaper reports, even in some of the, the more liberal papers, um, it was the, the lack of formal qualifications of the, of the suspects that was highlighted. It was the fact that their female relations, their mothers and sisters, were neither non-smokers nor natural blondes, right? Uh, that, that was highlighted as sort of almost some sort of, this is the reason they're guilty, you know? They're, well, they're not very bright, and look at them smoking, can you see what I'm saying here? So there's a prejudice that comes out in the national press. Now, this isn't a comment about the church necessarily. This is a comment about us as a nation, where we, we, like to, we have a highly developed class structure in this country. That's just the way it is. That's happened over centuries. Um, and you think, why do, people, why do you think people are like that? Why are they like that? A better question would be, what would churches have to do to overcome some of those attitudes? That's a, that's a more positive way of looking at it. What would churches have to do to overcome those attitudes? Well, I think, firstly, we, we need to engage with every culture and subculture. That would include the British working class. Now, I, I'm, I'm actively looking to engage with Nigerians in the area I live. It's not difficult because there's loads of them. And I like them. In fact, I love them. I love hanging around with the Nigerians. They're good fun. They seem to like me. The fact that I've been to Nigeria twice is like a huge open door for me. 
We can laugh about the way, the way people drive in Lagos. They don't actually drive, they just sort of turn the car and put their foot down as hard as they can and go, right? It doesn't matter if there's a with it, traffic light. I didn't see many traffic lights, but nobody took the blind bit of notice of them. I ain't kidding you. It, on a dual carriageway where you've got two lanes, we were driving down this dual carriageway. I prayed in tongues every time I was in driving along. I'm not, we were driving down a dual carriageway in Nigeria, two lanes full of potholes, so cars are weaving in and out like this. But two lanes isn't enough, right? So they become three lanes anyway. So you've got three lanes of cars on two lanes, dodging in and out of potholes. But if, you, if there's a slip road up there and you want to get down here, you think, you don't, you don't want to go all the way up and all the way around. So you just drive the wrong way on the hard shoulder, which is dirt, really, just because you haven't got to go too far and you can just come off, it's much easier. So that's the context. I'm, so I've, I've experienced all this. But when I talk to Nigerian people I meet in Bermondsey about it, they love it. We laugh together because it's fond memories for them and it's a connection. And we can identify and we can, uh, uh, can share with them something of, of culture. It's a cultural experience, isn't it? Similarly with the food, I can tell them how much I didn't like their food and we can laugh together because they don't like my food, you know? So, so but that we can apply that, that experience, you know, because it's, oh, it's the other side, it's African and white and we, we're learning and laughing. Well, let's apply that to our relationship within the class structure in our own nation. I think the problem is we don't acknowledge there is a different culture there. We think, well, we speak the same language, we're the same colour, so we're the same. But actually, we're not. There are huge differences of experience that, that we hardly ever meet one to the other. So to learn and understand, so for working class people to learn middle class culture, and I've had to do that, and identify and, and enjoy aspects of that culture, and, you know, and share in aspects of that culture. But I think we need to work that the other way as well, where middle class people can, uh, can identify and enjoy a, a, aspects of working class culture, which you know, some of those aspects are, could be more Christian than you think. So as we reach out, as we reach out, trying to be all things to all men, we'll come into contact with people, and then we'll find out what makes them tick. And, 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 we, and we can all do that, can't we? We don't have to be experts, or you know, we don't have to be the apostles and the, the uh, professional missionaries. To, we can all do it. See, don't make projects out of people. I, I just, it, 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 something that winds me up sometimes... Don't make projects out of people. Be enriched by them. Not every aspect of people's lives is nice. In fact, some of it's horrible, isn't it? But we can be enriched by different aspects of people's lives. Now, churches will work out strategies to, to reach the, the people around them. We'll work out strategies. You know, if you have a high percentage of Nigerians, for example, in your community, you'll work out strategies to reach them. I think the challenge for us is to acknowledge that we haven't got strategies necessarily, to reach the working class um, cultures in our midst, to recognise and to honour working class ways, and to change our attitudes to reach them. So we need to be consistent in our outreach to the working class. You know, we may think we've won a nation when we've influenced the media, and there's challenges positive challenges for us to do that. If we were to influence the media and the arts and, and, and the political system and the banking system, you know, 
But until we've impacted the, work, the working classes in this country, actually, I would say this. As goes for, no amount of success elsewhere will compensate for the church's failure there. Now, that's a big statement to make, but I think historically we can back it up. We, historically, we can back it up. Right? So we, we mustn't overlook the unschooled, ordinary men. You know, you, you look in scripture, who's the leaders? Who's the, who's the big names, right? By and large, Paul, Paul, I would say, is an exception. And even he, although he was highly schooled, had to unlearn pretty much everything to be an effective um, apostle. You know, it was unschooled, ordinary men who transformed the world. They were the apostles. They were the gospel preachers. They were doing the miracles and the signs and the wonders. They were the mighty men. You know, and if we, if, we, if we ignored the unschooled ordinary men, putting aside the apostles, what about some of the famous you know, men of, of history? John Bunyan, right? Hal Harris, if you've ever read of anything of Hal Harris, if you haven't read him. William Carey, you know, he was just a shoemaker and went and, went and translated the Bible in Indian dialects and spent his life out there. D.L. Moody, Elijah Cadman, who was one of um, C.H. Spurgeon's converts. He was a prize fighter who got converted. He was, he was renowned as, as a boxer. And if some of those early Salvation Army meetings got a bit raucous, you know, you're not a raucous, you're very polite. Cadman would, Elijah Cadman would roll up his sleeve slowly and walk slowly down the aisle just looking at people. Right, so he had a certain reputation. <laughs> Why, can you see? Unschooled ordinary men. I mean, Spurgeon w- w- was also, C.H. Spurgeon, sorry, was, um, did I say Spurgeon earlier when I meant William Booth? Sorry, I was just getting excited. Elijah Cadman was one of William Booth's earliest converts in the Salvation Army. But C.H. Spurgeon was also a remarkable example of a self-educated Christian leader, you know. He was self-taught, by and large. And there's, there's hosts of others we, we can do, you know. G- even you think of Jesus, right? What was Jesus in his in his human body? He was a he was a labourer, builder, a carpenter, whatever you want to put it. He wasn't a college lecturer, right? Reaching the working class, I believe, is a key to transforming our culture. See that historically, when Christianity really breaks into a culture, it's not the high level that's impacted first. Or at least in tandem, it's when the ordinary man in the street grasps evangelical Christianity to his own. You think, that's what I want. That's when, that's when you see the multitudes gather on Blackheath to hear uh, George Whitfield preach. That's when you see the miners of Bristol gathering in their thousands to hear someone stood on a mound proclaiming the good news of Jesus. It's when the ordinary working man who's, who's been ignored and put down and seen as irrelevant grasps evangelical Christianity. We see a revival of religion that impacts a whole nation and changes a culture. Can you see that? So there's a challenge for us. There is a challenge for us. It happened with the Methodists. It happened with the Salvation Army in the 19th century. You know, it, it's, it's a cultural change. So looking to affect a national culture through influencing individuals in the media or in government is a fantastic thing. But on its, in itself and on its own, it will not change a nation. The media, by and large, reflects where the nation is going and may drive it down a bit lower. We do need to influence our politicians with the gospel. We do need to influence our movers and shakers with the gospel. Amen to that. But we need to influence the working class. The man who on his own can't change a thing. But corporately, corporately he can change a nation.
before we get to the last slice of bread and it's not as thick as the first slice, I just want to give you some questions. A lot of you are taking notes. I want you to go away with three questions. What do you see as the main barriers to you, you personally, you as an individual, reaching the working class? Ask yourself that question. And then part B of that question, if you like, or the second question is, how are you going to overcome those barriers? And coupled with that, and it's very similar, really, the third question, but things work better in threes. Um, <laughs> what will becoming all things to all men mean to you? Where you live, where you work, with the people you live around, what will becoming all things to all men mean to you? Very briefly, Paul's strategy for winning others. He used his Christian freedom to become a slave to all. That's a big thing to do, isn't it? He used his Christian freedom to become a slave to all. Though I am free, he said, 1 Corinthians 9.19, though I am free and belong to no man, I make myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. As soon as you say, I've made myself a slave to all, you know, I've become uh, all things to all men, you're suddenly you're walking a tightrope. It's a dangerous place in lots of ways, right? Because if you fall one way, you're no use because you've no connection with the world. You know, I'm falling, oh, I'm going to go this way. The Christ, I'm going to hang around with the Christians. I'm going to read my Bible. I'm going to pray. I'm going to mix with Christians because it's a terrible world. Or if you fall that way, if you go that way, you're no use because you've, you've got... Um, you're becoming too much like the world. You know, becoming all things to all men. I'm hanging around with them. I'm suddenly you're picking up their, their, their worldly behavior and worldly habits, and suddenly you're no use because of that. So it is a tightrope, I believe. I can see that, but it's a tightrope we must walk in freedom. In freedom, we become slaves. There's a story of some Moravian Christians from the 18th century who literally sold themselves into slavery in the West Indies so they could reach the slaves that were already there for the gospel. They were free men, literally, and literally sold themselves as slaves because of the lamb that was slain. What a challenge. What a challenge to us. Lord, would you help us to use our freedom to become the servants of all that we might, by all means, win some? Lord, give us souls, not from one section of society, but from every, every uh, people group, every culture, every subculture across the spectrum. Lord, I pray for this church. I pray that these seats will be filled with people from every tribe and tongue, every culture and subculture, that no one will be excluded, no one will feel that on the outside, everyone will be part of this, that your church would speak to the world around. Lord, as we, we look in the book of Acts, that the, 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 the people were in awe of your church. They were almost in fear of them, they, yet their numbers were added to daily. 
Lord, I pray that's what we'd be like. There'd be something about us. People would look and it would take their breath away. They would think, how on earth does that person sit next door to that person? How is that person friends with him? How do those nations share their lives together? It doesn't happen in the world, but it happens in the church because we are a new kingdom. We are a new people. Once we were not a people, now we're a people belonging to God. Once we were in darkness, now we're in your wonderful light. We can see now this is different. And I pray, Jesus, that this church will reflect the many-faceted um, glory of your church. That this, this local expression of the body of Christ, this local expression here, will, will show your manifold wisdom to the world around. And I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.